Hello, everyone, and welcome to A608 After Hours. My name is Monica Higgins. And I'm Uche Mechi. And we're delighted to welcome with us today, David Reese. Hi, everyone. I'm very happy to be here today. Thanks, David. So in a moment, we're going to introduce David. But uh, first, just some reflections on the week, Uche. So uh, for me, goodness knows, I'm definitely thinking about teams, teaming, and in particular about psychological safety which is the extent to which people feel comfortable speaking up, admitting they may not know the answer, they may have made a mistake, uh, at the same time feeling accountable for producing high-quality results and how difficult that balancing act is, but it's all part of creating a workplace culture, a culture in which people feel like they can do their best work. Um, and it's so important in schools and it's so important in our country right now. So many people feel kind of stiltified and they can't, they don't feel comfortable psychologically safe speaking up right now. Um, so anyway, I'm thinking a lot about that. It was fun for me to be able to present some research on this topic, which I've been working on for years in New York City Public Schools, and hopefully uh, someday maybe it'll become a podcast, UJ. So um, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> the um, empire anyways. expands. Yes. Never know. Uh, but anyway, that's what I'm thinking about and love to hear your reflections, H.A. So I'm definitely thinking about psych safety also, um, as you mentioned. And I mean, the questions I ask are along the lines of everything you said. How do you ensure that all voices are heard, that folks don't self-censor for fear of punishment, that it's OK to make a mistake? But it's not always OK, is it? And the work that I do with leadership teams trying to build anti-racist cultures for their schools or organizations and whatnot, I frequently run into situations where people are nervous about saying the wrong things for fear of being branded as racist and or facing retribution. So, for example, we've got parents that are nervous to share their thoughts in meetings um, and being vulnerable with teachers and vice versa because the teachers have their kids and then the kids, I mean, so all of that. And then board members are nervous about sharing with each other and staff for the same reason. And people say what they believe others want to hear mm -hmm. and no real learning happens and actions are taken that are taken are often hollow with questionable relevance and effectiveness. And they're highly likely not to endure because they're not really thought out and they're not bought in. And it's hard work. Race in the U.S., I think, is a third rail. There's a lot of other things people would rather talk about that are still contentious. But I think race is a big one. And um, especially in this context of stack crises, which I'm sure we're all talking about. We've got COVID. We've got the police, pro the, um, the protests against police violence. We are hopefully working through the election. So in this context, there's a lot of reason that people are nervous and want to kind of not share everything. And mm -hmm. it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, this issue around psychological safety is not, you know, specific to the United States only. There's so many folks in the world in different cultural contexts, different country contexts who um, are fearful about speaking up. Um, and so this is a generalizable topic. It's a serious topic. Um, and we're so excited, David, to bring you into this conversation. So just a few words of introduction to begin. So David Reese 
is the Director of Equity and Excellence in the Prince George's County Public Schools in Maryland. There he leads the equity-focused strategic planning process and the implementation begins this spring in 2020 for the 135,000 student public school district. Um, His team is also responsible for engaging the system, which is 20,000 employees, and learning about implicit bias, deficit-based thinking, the impact of systemic racism, and creating more inclusive cultures that embrace marginalized populations, especially LGBTQ and refugee, Muslim, newcomer, and economically disadvantaged groups. Wow. David, welcome. We so look forward to this conversation. And if you want to add on to that, um, you are most welcome to do so. Absolutely. And thank you again for for having me here to be a part of this this really important conversation. As I was listening to the two of you speak speak earlier, I think one thing that I really was really resonating with me was some of the work that we're leading in our district right now around implicit bias. And when I returned to Prince George's County in February, um, we we're launching some work and beginning to, I was beginning to start a new office, being an, an intra-entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur again. And we had the unfortunate killing of George, um, uh, the, the unfortunate killing that happened. And in June, it kind of catapulted us into reviving some conversations around implicit bias and racism and systemic racism. And in that, I was able to present information to all 20,000 staff members and during that first session, you know, I we had this, it was on YouTube and it was interactive. People were able to use the chat feature and people began speaking their truth. And they were saying things like, well, you've got this panel that's up there of executive leaders, but where's the LGBTQ representation? And it's Pride Month. And we can't believe mm. that you haven't recognized pride. And what about the Muslim community? So people in the chat felt a sense of freedom to express these, these thoughts and ideas and some of their complaints. And when we had the next session, you know, I was able to address those comments um, in a pre-recorded thing that happened on YouTube where I wore three different shirts. I had on a Dreamer shirt for a piece of it and a Black Lives Matter shirt for another piece of it and then mm-hmm. a rainbow shirt that said Be You. And we were able to talk about how I was inspired and the system was inspired by some of the feedback that we heard. And it was important for executive leadership to comment back to what was happening in the thread. And it was a sense of of tension because people were like, oh, my gosh, people are angry in the chat. What do we do about that? And some of us said, well, we have the opportunity to honor what people are saying and respond. So um, I just that, that was top of mind for me mm. to what you all were talking about in terms of psychological safety. And I think it's incumbent upon leadership to know when people are exp- expressing a complaint or speaking their truth that it represents an opportunity to increase more psychological safety. Great. Indeed. Thank, Thank you, you so much. That leads right, that's right into this uh, first question, um, which I'd love to ask you about um, in terms of the work that you've done. And yes, you've been an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, and um, just uh, love your reflection. So you've done a lot of work at the senior leadership level as well as at the teacher level in urban districts to try and change people's behavior so that they truly reflect on their own practice and so that they can create psychologically safe spaces in teams in particular. Tell us what you've learned about doing this work, both as an insider and as an outsider to the systems you've tried to change. You've played both kinds of roles, um, all sorts of roles, 
what's been the most daunting and what's been the most exciting? Well, so what's, I, I have had the opportunity to really work in a lot of different contexts um, as an insider and outsider at a state department, um, as an insider and in a school district as an insider. And then I've consulted, you know, on my own and with other organizations mm-hmm. to those types of organizations. And one thing I find common, like whether I'm an insider or outsider, and whether I stated explicitly or not, but it's important to put norms in place where people can explicitly examine their mental models that they have about the world and how it operates. And I think that that's important for leveling the playing field and opening the door to conversations about beliefs and values. So what does that look like? It could look like a a check-in on an agenda in the first five minutes where people talk about something that they value and hold dear that's connected to their identity, where people might choose to talk about religion or the identity of being a mother or the identity of being someone who's adopted. And it just kind of creates a space where people can kind of begin to understand people's worldviews. Or it could be as technical as using an article from Senge and saying, read this article, this two-pager about mental models and how they work, and how do you think they're impacting um, the types of conversations we have and don't have um, at the tables where we're engaged in discourse. Uh, so so that, that's the common feature that I think is really important for leveling the playing field and opening up dialogue. But what's really daunting is that as an yeah. insider or outsider, there is often a palpable fear that exists with people within organizations. And they'll say things like, well, you're trying to do this new thing in this new way, but you're here today and you'll be gone tomorrow. I've been here for 30 years and I have to live in this culture. So I understand that maybe today I am safe to say this, but I might not be tomorrow. So I'll hold back. So David, when that happens, what, what, how do you respond? I acknowledge people's fear and say mm-hmm. it is smart to move at your own pace and at your own level of comfort. So as an mm-hmm. internal or external facilitator, just to acknowledge that that's where people are. And sometimes these are private conversations that they'll have with the consultant or the facilitator kind of off to the side, or they'll give you a private chat. Um, but the opposite, but the other side of the question is what gets me most excited is when some of those same people actually begin to speak up and express more of their truth and they kind of run these small tests to see, you know, what will happen if, for example, I from a with a lower position in the hierarchy, if I speak before the person who has higher status in the hierarchy, right? Because some of these norms are things that people are trying to play with and tussle with. And, you know, it's for me as a facilitator, sometimes I have to help celebrate when those things happen, but do so in a way that doesn't upset the apple cart too much sometimes. So the excitement is when people take the leap. And what's yeah. daunting is that there's a thing that's common everywhere around mm. here and that and keeping myself safe um, is most important in people's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that does not directly move an equity agenda or it can get in the way of moving an equity agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting how you acknowledge that emotion. You talked about identity, and I'd like to ask you um, a direct question about that, um, because obviously, I mean, not only have you played different roles, but you've worked with folks who have very different kinds of identities themselves, as well as interests in bringing or not bringing that to the floor. So when you think about your own identity in any way you want to define this, how has it impacted how you enter the work you do in education? And has that shifted over time? And if so, how? Wow, that's a really big question. 
and, and since I'm leading work in our <laughs> now around equity, he's laughing. We know we it, ask you big a, questions. It's a real question because I'm David Reese. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a real answer. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Bring it. So there are identities that I have that people assume that when I show up, they often see a black man. Um, they used to see someone who's younger, but now that I have all this gray showing up in my beard, very distinguished. Maybe they by don't the way, assume that anymore. <laughs> Some people are jealous of it, DJ. This <laughs> 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 thing I have happening here. Um, so I think people see that and they can make um, they assign things to it. Some people might know that there's a Harvard affiliation attached to me. Um, sometimes not. So people make their assumptions around that clothing, articulation. So all mm. of these things are speaking to identity in some way. Um, but what I've recently found, and I'll just use a very clear example, when I was facilitating this professional learning that was pre-recorded on YouTube and people were saying, we can't believe you have this panel and there's no LGBTQ representation. And we can't believe that there are all these biases showing up. When we did the next presentation, I had to share a bit of my own personal identity as it connects to my sexual orientation and my person and my personal lifestyle as a gay man. And there were some people who were surprised by it. Some people who knew it, but said he's never spoken about that before. But it was an opportunity to model some of what I was expecting other people to do. And being, I guess, an executive level leader, I relearned the importance of stating things explicitly so that other people either feel more comfortable speaking their truth or so that people have a broader picture of who's actually represented at the table. Because without stating these things explicitly, often we might not know. And I think it has, in a way, my hope is that it creates a sense of more psychological safety, even if others choose not to identify themselves, to see that other people can do it. And I'm still here. People Mm -hmm. aren't treating me differently. I still am leading professional development. So there hasn't been any like repercussion for this, Mm -hmm. this, in some regards, this taboo being spoken. Because some people believe that you can't bring your whole self to work and be at a certain level in the organization. Yeah, that's great. Wow, that's powerful. David, as I listen to you, like, I mean, there's a lot of consistency in what I hear you talking about. First with the mental models, really kind of getting at what's under, what's under the surface that we don't see and that's actually driving it, like what assumptions and so on and so forth. And I know like in a lot of the conversations that I've had, like I'm black, I'm black male, but I'm also Nigerian and I, so I'm not African-American. So there's some things I share, some things I don't with um, some aspects of African-American life. But then there's so many different cultures and like people from so many different places at one of the schools I work. We've got people from the islands. We've got people who are Dominican. We've got people who are first and second generation. And there's no one monolithic group. Yes, because of skin color, we're looked at, we're looked at the same way by a large swath, unfortunately, of society. But still, in terms of the way we integrate and way people understand and so on and so forth, there's so much going on. And oftentimes, getting at that diversity of, of experiences is super powerful. And it's a great way to diffuse some of the tension that comes up, both within, I'd say, people who identify as black, but also people who identify as white, and start a conversation. So we're seeing 
how we're responding to how we're seen, being seen from the outside, but we're also understanding that it's not just one monolithic block on the inside. So I think, again, it's really getting at what's underneath, what's not initially visible and trying to make that as visible as possible. So thank you for talking about that, yeah, David. Definitely. I have a quick follow-up. Well, all right, I'm actually going to switch tracks a little bit. Um, but it's really kind of just pulling into the conversation, the context that we're in. So there's been a lot going on over the last week. The election of Joe Biden, varying responses to the election, the fact that the country is still divided. Um, I think even though it was like 74 million, Biden, he won, he had the most votes ever. Trump had the second most votes ever. So like we still have a very divided, divided country. Um, and now the recent report of potential um, of potential vaccine, and there's a lot of euphoria, but then there's a lot of people who are not sure and so on and so forth of what that means. So Monica and I have been saying that we are in a context of stacked crises, but now I like I think we're also in a context of potentially dramatic change and quick change. And as we tell our students, context is king. Whether you find yourself on a plating floor as in Slade or crash landed in a subarctic, um, as they did today. And how do you think about leadership in such times of dramatic change like this? So how do you think about it from your also a nice light question? I mean, we're we're all about light <laughs> no questions. Problem. We don't push people. <laughs> That's definitely right. We just want yeah. you to it, relax, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> So there, there, that, that is a, another really meaty question. Thank you for asking it. So you don't want to, a crisis can represent a really good opportunity, um, especially for leadership. And for some reason, I've got Monica Higgins in my head talking about the definition of leadership that she uses, which is people creating conditions for others to do their best work. Love and that. I'm also thinking about adaptive leadership. And a lot of these stat crises represent truly, truly complex um, dynamics that leaders have to have to lead within. And so I think it's important for leaders to be, become very clear about who they are and what their values are and what the values of their constituents are, because being grounded in those values, I think, and understanding that of others and that there's many perspectives out there, I think can help people stay situated. I think creating conditions for others to do their best work as it relates to adaptive leadership, really gets to the idea that teaming and organizational learning and that the ideas that will come from the collective are what's going to yield the best possible solution and that leaders have to find ways of harnessing that and in crisis situations sometimes to resist being, mm -hmm. to come in and save the day with a solution, which is only going to be a temporary fix. Uh, and doesn't necessarily mobilize people and isn't necessarily sustainable necessarily, right? Um, I, I guess I would caution people to be aware, to be wary, to be cautious of um, the sexiness that comes in with coming in with your cake and trying to save the day and giving the answer mm -hmm. and giving the work back to the people in productive and meaningful ways, but also then moving to some sort of action that's meaningful. Um, mm -hmm. Not the easiest thing to do, when there's lots of pressures from lots of higher ups and people with real authority to say, I need to see you're doing something. And especially when those who, who, who you're leading expect that of you. Mm -hmm. No, great. And, and I want to follow up because this is based on something you said earlier. Because I remember when you were talking about 
change and people being afraid of change. And this was really what we're talking about. In this context, some of the change, a lot of the people you're trying to lead that you're trying to work with may be responding to this change very differently, like have very different takes on the change and maybe how it impacts their work or just in general. Any thoughts on that? Wow. That's another really... (laughs) You all really have me um, going deeply here. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific example that could that 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 could relate here. Um, so Maryland is a heavily Democratic state, and in Prince George's County, sometimes you have 85 to 90 percent of people voting for um, a Democratic candidate. And as we were doing some of our professional learning, you know, people were saying one way we can make a difference is by voting. And there was just a lot of you know comments in the chat about vote and exercise your right and have your voice heard. And even though people weren't necessarily giving a political affiliation, I got lots of emails from people who said, but I'm conservative and I'm Republican and Mm -hmm. does my voice matter here? And do I have an opportunity to to say how I feel about immigration and Mm -hmm. who should and shouldn't be here and what's constitutional? And I had to say, absolutely, it is our job to create space for those diverse exchanges. But I think we have to be comfortable holding tension and still in insisting that we value perspectives and that we get along and work together um, as we allow people to kind of speak their truth from their perspectives there's a it's it, it's complicated but um you know, no, these changes do have different implications for different people mm-hmm. and we want everyone to perform at her his or their best mm-hmm. uh, so you have to let people you know we really have to actually really embrace diversity for real and sometimes mm-hmm. that giving the floor to people who you adamantly disagree with. Definitely hear you. And I know a lot of this, like this question was kind of asked, some, a lot of the big changes, political and context, but like I've seen non-political, I guess, capital P uh, political issues mm-hmm. that somebody brings in this new change. We want real a culture of anti-racism and we're not trying to make it political or anything, but there's like, I, I've seen it in organizations. Half the people are like, yes, this is what we want. Others are like, wait, I'm not sure that, first of all, I'm not sure if I understand. I'm not sure that I buy into the strategy. And then you have to kind of bring these different perspectives together. But then there's the question of, is your goal to kind of bring them together? Is your goal to get to somewhere else? And so, yes, it's definitely difficult. And it's a conversation we've had with the students so I was just kind of curious, and I love the way you responded to it. Well, and I have one other quick, um, quick story to tell. So we, we okay. so you do like these tough well, questions. Yeah, like, <laughs> getting into it. Like, I love it. <laughs> our buildings have been built in the 1950s, 1940s, and have mm-hmm. been are in disrepair. A few of our schools are brand new and state of the art. Mm-hmm. We need lots of new schools in the school system. Well, we need we need schools where the population is booming. Where is the population booming? where we have a large Latinx and Hispanic influx into Prince George's County. And so mm-hmm. there are lots of new schools that will be built in those areas. And there are some people who feel like, well, what about those of us in the Southern end who've been here for forever and we're black yeah. African American, don't our students deserve new schools too? But a lot of the schools have smaller populations and aren't over flooded with, um, with capacity issues. And so that becomes the change of, yes, we want the change, but we want it here, not there. And sometimes we have to be transparent around what goes into decision-making, what the processes are, and allow people to kind of see a transparent process on both they can weigh in on. And generally, when people see transparency, they're much more likely to accept the results. (laughs) Sometimes not. 
<laughs> Agreed. So interesting. You know what else I was thinking about, David? Uh, you know, that, that data-wise case that we often teach about. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I thought was so powerful about that case and implementing data-wise across Prince George's County was starting with the leadership actually doing the work. So when you see, and and for me, kind of this conversation has made me think about how transparent you have been in your work in so many different ways in terms of your own identity, in terms of saying, you know, yes, this is hard, or even acknowledging fear. The transparency is it it requires vulnerability, but it can really be fabulous in terms of, you know, just creating a whole, hopefully, uh, you know, the psychologically safe environment that you need for other people to feel when you feel it yourself, they can see that and they can, you know, really learn from you. So I'm taking away from this a lot about transparency, role modeling, being explicit, um, not shying away from kind of the emotional side of the change process either, which I love. How about you, Uche? The same thing, that transparency piece, and not just about process. I remember you started talking about the mental model and like getting at assumptions. So including the process and how things are done, because people really want to understand that, but also trying to surface as much of the thought processes of people around the table, because even if they're in disagreement, just the fact that there might be some disconnect um, or tension with the assumptions that others may have had can actually create a level space for a conversation. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Thank you so much, so much. And, and acknowledging that, you know, not only is the work hard, but our questions are hard, <laughs> which we appreciate. <laughs> would, would you mind if we ask you a couple of hopefully easier questions? Let's go for it. Let's fun questions. <laughs> okay. So the first fun, easy question then, David, is what's your favorite dessert? I have two. I can eat ice cream every single day of my life. I would do it if my body would allow me to. And banana pudding. That's baked oh. banana pudding. Uh, oh. I like it cold. Hmm. Wait, sorry. You baked banana pudding, but then you like it cold. Right. So there's oh. banana pudding that you can make that's, that always stays cold. But then okay. I put mine in the oven and I bake it. But then it needs to cool. And has okay. to be refrigerated, almost slightly frozen. Oh my like God. I like You've got a gourmet here. Custard or something. And I learned how to make it from my mother. Oh, mm. I'd like. I like that idea. All right. So this question may be fun and easy, or it may be hard, depending on how you want to take it. What are you most grateful for right now? Wow. What am I most grateful for? Right now. Besides the majestic silver stubble. I'm <laughs> <laughs> about it because um, because you don't have it. <laughs> but right now I am most grateful for, I'm actually grateful to be back in a school district that's committed to a mission that is very meaningful to me. And for those of you mm. who know something about me, maybe you read the case or the data-wise case, scaling data-wise. I never really saw myself as being somebody who would work inside of a school district or a large bureaucratic organization like it. Mm. And I left and now I'm back and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be back and still being able to contribute in meaningful ways. So I, I really mm. am grateful for the meaningful work. I love that. That's great. I love that. Okay. So last question for you. Um, what's one thing you wish somebody had told you about life after HGSE? 
So people said this to me, but I don't think I believe this. So this is my answer <laughs> to this question. Uh-uh. We had a dean. Her name was Kathleen McCartney. And when that came to the, there was this new doctoral program that I was a part of the first mm. cohort of. And so there was a lot of, you know, excitement about some newness that was happening. And people said things like, you're part of the Harvard community and you'll, you'll be a Harvardian for the rest of your life. And we're about community. And I was thinking... They say this about every single school you ever come to. <laughs> they kick you off the email. You don't have email anymore. And they ask oh, for right. money. But Harvard really does mean that you're part of a community for the long haul. And I underestimated the extent to which that would be true. So I guess that's something I'm also grateful for. Mm. But I wish that they would have told me how much that continued community would just impact me professionally. I'm where I would still continue to grow um, and evolve as a leader. Um, and so I, I guess that had I known how real that was, I would have been even more excited about the choice to come um, when I made it. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. That's Thank great. You. David, I we love have it. loved having you and hearing about your work now and just um, you being so transparent with us. We really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you. Pleasure.